Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Tez Scotland podcast. I'm Emma Seath, senior reporter, and with me is Tez Scotland editor Henry Hepburn. So first of all, we're going to talk about our um, latest big read, which is focusing on timetabling. Now, uh, this might sound like a bit of a dry topic, but what comes through loud and clear from Henry's um, investigation is that the timetable has a massive impact on schools, in particular in terms of the range of courses and qualifications that can be delivered, and therefore, of course, the options that are open to pupils. And you also make it clear in the piece, Henry, that a cleverly designed timetable can save money and even improve attainment because pupils are able to take the subjects that interest them as opposed to the ones that fit within the constraints of the timetable. Mm. So can you maybe just start by telling us about, you know, sort of how attitudes to timetabling are shifting? Well, it's probably a good good start just to talk about how attitudes to timetabling have been established and, and have been in place for, for a long time, which... According to people who um, who look at this very closely, they say that the problem has been that uh, timetable has been the preserve of a lone expert too often, someone who's you know charged, who is with who has this expertise and is just expected to go away and disappear for a, an extended period of time and come up with this masterwork of of timetable and scheduling. And um, now, one of the experts I spoke to said that just won't cut it because essentially. A timetable in a school is like an engine in a car. It drives everything and you can't just leave that to one person uh, or a small bunch of people. It's, you know, everyone, especially at the leadership level, should be, um, should have a, a working knowledge of how timetables are put together and how they function. So, and I think the conclusion is that things are changing a bit and there is a bit more awareness of, of that, but there's still a, still a good bit to go. Okay, okay. So a little bit, you know, so, so yeah, kind of moving in the right direction, but it's, it's almost like this kind of growing awareness really about the impact that it has on the school and then the the importance for more than just one person to sort of have that expertise. I mean, so can you just kind of take us through that in a bit more depth, you know, sort of about when sure. timetabling's done well, you know, sort of what's the potential impact of that? Yeah, I think, I think the, maybe a fundamental principle that, uh, people have been telling me should be established is that you shouldn't see a timetable as here's this monolithic thing and you just have to fit in around that it's almost like flipping that completely on his head and saying well what do students want to study what do they want to do what sort of pathway do they want to go on and then working back from that and creating the timetable that allows that to happen um and, and that will be a timetable that also incorporates maybe fe fe colleges maybe employers even and um when timetable is done well, and when you factor all this in and all these different pathways, um, let's say one of, the, one of the people I spoke to, the the direct quote from them, them is, if you really want young people to attain well, allow them to choose what they study. Give them a free choice. Um, and the common sense result of that is that if you have that freedom to pursue the things that interest you, then you will attain better. Um but there's also there's also a financial argument behind better timetabling. So you know the examples given of say a school of around a thousand students, um, which costs several million pounds a year to run, and probably about three quarters of that is on staffing. So even a, a very slight improvement, a very slight tweak to how those staffing are how those staff are deployed, which might just use a particular teach, teacher skills better, could start to free up money, starts to free up time. So, and again, with the codes and the pieces, you can buy a lot of textbooks for. £20,000 and 
that twenty thousand pounds might be recouped from from a just a tweak here or there. Um, and obviously, if you're saving, if your timetable is more efficient, saving teachers time and using their skills more effectively, um, then that could obviously work wonders for big issues in the teaching workforce just now, like well-being and, and retention. Presumably, there's limits, though. So you know, like, the, the, what are some of the kind of barriers to, to you know, sort of to to bringing the, to realizing this, you know, sort of more bespoke, you know, kind of timetabling? Well, I spoke to Douglas Hutchison, who's the, the education director in Glasgow, Scotland's biggest local authority, and has just recently stepped down as president of ADIS, which is the education director's body in Scotland. He used the metaphor of he basically said timetabling is like three D chess. It's that complex. It's that difficult. But um, at the same time, the, there are. I think I think the this idea of the sort of lone expert doing the timetable has been established so many years. It's quite hard to get over that and um, and get more people involved in it. So that's just a, a well-established thing. And then the whole, you know, these we all remember in secondary school, these very strict columns. You might want to do this subject and that subject. Ah, but you can't because look, you're in the same column. So it's trying to get out of that mindset. So that, there's a sort of, I guess, a, a mindset shift to, have, to, to, to do, to have there. But also... You can aspire to these sort of more fluid, flexible timetables, but obviously the more that you try to do that, the more greater complexity you're introducing. So uh, the more ground you try to cover, the, the harder that is to um, to balance everything. For example, if you're talking about a more, so we hear a lot now about schools trying to establish a more fluid senior phase, so you don't have S4, S5, S6 as these sort of discrete entities that they sort of interact with each other more. But then you have, obvious logistical difficulties like so you have the five higher model long established in s5 at national five traditionally in s4 you know you're talking about seven or eight national fives how do you make a system of five subjects fit with a system of seven or eight subjects so there's you know there's mindset mindset problems over to overcome there's logistical difficulties um it's 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 complex uh, in short I guess that then when things are complicated, it's always nice to find out about the people who are already doing it really well so that you can just, you know, sort of borrow from them and, you know, sort of learn, you know, sort of what they've sort of discovered as they've gone through this. So, I mean, are there schools that we can look to that are having success and really managing to open up the choice for their pupils? Well, as luck would have it, there was a report published very recently, just in the past few weeks, by Education Scotland on behalf of what's called the National Timetabling Group. And it's the first of a series of reports over the next couple of years um, on timetabling. And this one has quite a few interesting case studies in it. So, for example, with Brechin High in Angus, which has, has a curriculum that's now based on they're called a free choice model with columns that are uh, driven by student choice rather than you know, the, the columns dictating the choices that are available to students. So, and they're saying that this, I think the direct quote is, this is provi- you know, this provides enhanced progression pathways with strong links to the labor local labor market. So um, you have, for example, school and college staff working more closely on, uh, t- to get away from this more traditional and monolithic timetable. So, uh, for example, breaking high students can take a level four construction skills and automotive foundation apprenticeship. But that's being delivered by technical teachers as part of the school curriculum. 
you've got level five construction skills where the, the kids are going to Dundee and Angus College. So there's this sort of fluidity between um, college and school. It's, you know, the, the whole college experience is not bolt on to the school experience. Then uh, just a few miles away in Grove Academy in Dundee. Um, so they've been moving away from this sort of traditional emphasis on individual courses in favour of what's described in the report as a greater focus on pathways and longer term planning. So again, you've got a sort of intertwining of school and college timetables and there's sort of innovation that's resulting from that. Um, so the report talks about placements, student placements now being um, fully integrated into their school timetables. So, and the practical benefit of that is that uh, they may not have to be pulled out of their other classes as much because there's that greater sort of interaction between the the school and the college experience. Um, and just one really important point to make, it's not just about, you know, our timetable, it isn't just about improving the student experience, you know, driving up attainment. I mean, obviously the elephant in the room with any education issue just now is that funding is very tight. You know, local authorities are, are facing really tough times. So there's, a, there's one sentence really jumped out of me from this report that will just, you know, really make uh, a lot of eyes light up, I think. So it says the increasing collaboration between the school and a range of partners enabled a significant expansion of the curriculum at a time of local budget and staffing cuts. So I guess it's what it's saying is that you know, we appreciate there's all these financial difficulties and yet it is still possible to improve the experience of teachers, of students and the school and, you know, create a richer curriculum. Well, ways of doing more with uh, less are yeah. certainly going to be, you know, sort of welcome, um, you know, sort of by our readership in such, you know, sort of difficult times. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you so much for taking us through, um, you know, those key messages, obviously in the article itself. You know, there's more information on um, those case studies that um, Henry was mentioning, as well as you know sort of links to the research in the in, in this area. You know, including the Education Scotland report on timetabling that Henry mentioned, and all of that can be found on the TES Scotland hub. Um, so clearly, the other big story that is on the TES Scotland hub as of yesterday is um, the PISA results. So um, maybe just kind of take people through, you know, sort of what they were showing just, you know, sort of briefly, um, you would have had to have been um, sort of buried in a ditch, I think, to not have, um, you know, sort of heard what's been happening with these. But um, this is uh, the Programme for International Student Assessment, so better known as PISA. Um, and these are the first results um, since 2019 um, that have been published uh, this week. Um, PISA uh, assessments measure 15-year-olds' performance in science and reading. They come out every three years. But this year, the report was delayed um, because of the pandemic by a year. So that's why we're getting these results now. Um, so just to kind of take you briefly through Scotland's scores, in maths, which was the main focus of PISA this time, Scotland's score fell by 18 points. In reading, it fell by 11 points and in science by 7 points. You know, so just to kind of try and put that into some sort of context, according to the OECD, um, which is responsible for producing this report, 20 points equates to a year of learning. Um, you know, so ultimately, Scottish students scored close to the average um, across the OECD for maths and science and above average for reading. So, I mean, important context to mention just very briefly, scores are down across the OECD. The report says that there's been an unprecedented fall in scores among the 81 countries and economies taking part. But 
in Scotland, the decline was steeper, um, you know, for mass, which was the focus of this report. And the researchers are clear as well that this is not just about the pandemic. They're really, really sort of specific about that. They really emphasise that. So what Andreas Schlesser, who's basically Mr. Pisa, he's the OECD's Director for Education and Skills, um, was saying is that we cannot expect the scores just to bounce back as we sort of get over the pandemic. Um, what he said um, are other issues that policymakers should take really seriously or things like declining parental engagement. And this is specifically talking about the UK. This was in his briefing for journalists ahead of the results coming out just the day before the results came out. So he's specifically talking about the UK. UK. So declining parental engagement, worsening student-teacher relationships, difficulties recruiting teachers, something that you were touching on there as well, Henry, and you know, sort of talking about timetabling. It's hard to deliver a timetable if you don't have the staff. And then the negative impact of smartphone use um, for leisure purposes. So these were the other areas that they thought were maybe contributing to the scores falling. Um, so this isn't the first time the impact of mobile phones on learning has been raised in recent times. Um, I know that you were wanting to kind of maybe, you know, kind of come in on that, Henry. Yeah, no, I just think it's, it's interesting that that's come up in the PISA report because it feels like it's an issue that is just not going to go away anytime soon. You know, we've, um, in the space of a little more than a decade, we've gone from smartphones not being a thing in people's lives to them being absolutely all pervasive. And of course, the teenagers are no exception and to an increasing extent, probably primary pupils as well. And we are hearing anecdotally, you and I, more and more from teachers and school leaders about the frustrations of um, the impact of, of phones in schools and, you know, schools really try to grapple with what to do, but something that's come around and become such a, just a normalized part of school life so quickly, um, they're almost running to catch up. And, you know, over the last few years, we have heard intermittently of pupil, or, sorry, of schools, you know, effectively banning mobile phones, uh, but they've tended to be more in the independent sector. So I know that we, Emma, you reported recently of a, you know, school in, in Edinburgh, which has, has taken a similar stance. And we're starting to hear that more and more, but it, it's, it's, it's something that's not going to go away um, anytime soon, that schools, you know, really have to, um, you know, grapple with every day. And, you know, the PISA report, as she, as she alluded to, um, some really interesting stuff in there. So, um, in light of certainly some local authorities where, you know, we're handing out devices to, uh, to pupils, um, to every pupil in, in, in the authority, um, or a certain, above a certain age. Um, so the piece is saying that students who spent up to one hour a day in digital devices for activities in school scored 14 points higher in math than students who spent no time, even after you sort of took account of students in school socioeconomic profile. And that, that sort of positive relationship there was, you know, seen in over half of the, the countries with available data. But really interestingly, um, technology used for leisure, as they described in the PISA report, rather than instruction, so such as mobile phones, they, that often seems to be associated with poorer results. So students reporting that they become distracted by other students are, uh, so even the students who aren't using digital devices have become distracted by the ones who are using mobile phones um, and that's having an impact on math scores. Uh, so 
that's it's it's almost you know we've done this mass social experiment of introducing um, phones to teenagers and thereby into schools and you know maybe this is a sign of this research starting to catch up and really work out what the impact is and uh, those who've intuitively thought there's something to worry about here are you know the PISA reports anything to go by then they're starting to see cold hard evidence that it really is something to worry about and as I say the bottom line is um, schools are you know they can't just ignore it it's, it's something that's increasingly a bugbear uh, in the classroom in corridors in schools and uh, yeah it's an issue I'm sure we'll be returning to uh, frequently over the, the months and years ahead. Yeah well absolutely and PISA of course is not the only piece of research that's highlighting this as an issue so I mean the reason why we started to look at what was going on at Craig Royston High School in Edinburgh and the way that they had um, started to kind of introduce a ban on phones beginning with their S1 pupils was because of the, be of the behaviour in Scottish schools research which highlighted the, you know, sort of the biggest um, barrier to learning as far as secondary teachers were, was concer were concerned with digital devices, including, you know, mobile phones and um, tablets. You know, so, you know, it's quite, it, it's interesting that that then comes up again with PISA. It was raised earlier this year in the UNI UNESCO Technology in Schools report, you know, so it's our technology and education report. You know, so it's 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 interesting that it kind of keeps on coming up, and often logistical problems are you know with with a ban. You know, sort of. So how do you do it? You know, sort of. How do you sort of make that a reality? Um, and the Craig Royston example was interesting in that, in that they start they're starting with S one because that's the cohort that hasn't been used to having mobile phones in school. They check the mobile phones in at the beginning of the day. Um, they check them out at the end of the day. And it's actually leading to less kids bringing schools, bringing their phones to school in the first place. And of course, in Edinburgh, they also have a, you know, sort of one on one devices scheme so that those devices are there for learning. Because that's such an important point, isn't it, from PISA, that there's this difference between using the phones for leisure and using the phones for, you know, sorry, using a device for leisure and using a device, you know, sort of for, for learning that actually can have a positive impact, but it's just about the way that it's being used. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to the TES Scotland podcast. Make sure to subscribe via all the usual platforms and we'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode.